as we open our hearts to receive God's word and submit our lives to Jesus the King, I say, Jesus be with you. This last summer, I had the privilege of being on the campus of the Colorado School of Mines to hear our own Dr. Annabelle Pratt give a lecture to the esteemed gathering of the American Scientific Affiliation. The topic of her lecture was the modernization of the electric grid. I learned a ton. I learned that the electricity that the average American household uses per month is 900 kilowatt hours. It's the same amount of energy as having 40 cyclists in your living room pedaling for eight hours a day every day. I learned that the electric grid is the most affordable and consistent form of energy that we've ever known in the history of the world. 99.9% availability. I learned that it's the electric grid has been one of the chief pushbacks on poverty in our country. I learned that the electric grid in the United States is the largest machine in the history of mankind. Many uh, engineering uh, prestigious awards have called out the electric grid as the greatest engineering achievement in the 20th century. But that's, you see, just the problem, Annabelle pointed out, is that our electric grid is still firmly rooted in the 20th century. And to update it, to make it clean, to keep it powering, it's going to take substantial amounts of money and effort to keep electricity is as we know it today. It was an amazing lecture. Can I say this? First service booed me. It was electric. <laughs> okay. There was something else I learned uh, while I was on the campus of the School of Mines. Before Annabelle's lecture, one of the faculty members came and welcomed us all to the campus and began to share the history of the Colorado School of Mines. Did you know that it was founded in 1873 by an Episcopal priest by the name of George Maxwell Randall? He was sent to the Colorado Territory from Trinity Church in Boston as a missionary. And when he got to Golden, Colorado, and he looked around the Colorado Territory, he saw the lack of higher education, and so he started a school that we now know as the Colorado School of Mines. And in his purpose statement, he said, it would be a place for those who want to study theology and the sciences. Has it ever seemed to you like everywhere you go, Jesus has been there already? I love the way that John Ortberg uh, reflected on this in his book, Who Is This Man? He talked about the normal trajectory of a human life is that you have impact, you die, and then your impact begins to recede. But Jesus inverted the normal impact of a human life in that 100 years after his death, he was more influential and greater impact than when he lived. 500 years after his death, more impact than when he lived. A thousand years after his death, his movement was laying the foundations of Europe. 2,000 years after Jesus' death, 
He has more followers in more places than ever before. Ortberg then jokingly points out that he's a pastor in the San Francisco Bay Area and that he lives and in most every city in Los Angeles is named after a saint or a mission. And the state capital of California is named after the Christian sacrament. He's been there everywhere, no matter where you go. uh, Ortberg quotes uh, one of my favorite quotes I've shared with you before from uh, the great 20th century Yale historian, Jaroslav Pelikan. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Mm. But, doesn't it seem that often the hardest thing to see is what's right in front of you. Mark 1.1. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark wrote so that his readers would see Jesus for who he is. And the genre that Mark selects to convey that to his readers is what we would call action-adventure. There's very little teaching in the Gospel of Mark, a few punchy parables. Everything else is flurry. One act after another confronting us. We have to believe it or no. Never happened. It's action, adventure. Chapter 3, on the Sabbath, healing courses through a man's body. He's healed Jesus says, take up your mat, go home, and for this first time ever, this man walks out of the synagogue on his own legs. It's chapter 5. Jesus routs a regiment of demons that had bivouacked into a tortured man living in a cemetery. And the way he does it is he sends the demons into a pigs. Of his pigs become Jesus' messengers to send these demons into the abyss. And all the town sees this floating bacon, and they politely ask Jesus to leave. End of chapter 5, Jesus walks into a dead room. A dead daughter, 12-year-old girl, is dead. And Jesus, as if he was waking up his own daughter from a nap, says, Honey, honey, time to get up. As if he could do this for anyone who might need it one day. Chapter 6, he feeds a crowd with a boy's lunch. Plays on the energy matter equation, a crowd of 20,000 people from two loaves and five fish. Twelve baskets left over go figure there's some math there some problems and then they see it and they want to make him king they press in on him he escapes the disciples are in a boat where's jesus i don't know oh there he is walking on the water whoever controls the water might be god chapter seven last week he gave hearing to a hard of hearing man and gave him his voice he with a really coarse question that we would be offended if we ever were asked he knew it was exactly what a gentile woman who was far from him needed to hear and he wooed her into the kingdom not to mention healing his demon-laced daughter And in all of these action sequences, in between, there's these little condiments, these little Jesus things, where he says, for instance, 
yeah, the Sabbath, I was there. I'm the one that actually gave that at creation. Or this idea that, you know, I can heal people, but I also forgive their sins. And what's easier for me to say, get up and walk or I forgive your sins? And Jesus began acting as if every sin you and I have ever committed chiefly offended him. It's mind-boggling. It's 737 elevation flight thing marked 737. People were amazed with amazement, overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The problem is that though the disciples and the Pharisees and the crowds in between saw it, they didn't really see the point. And so today in our text in Mark 8, our last one until January, Jesus is going to double down on a miracle and do it again. He's going to cut another miracle in half, all to get to a point where we see finally the most amazing miracle in the book. A human heart finally sees who Jesus is. So there's this feeding of the 4,000. We had the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. The feeding of the, uh, chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000 is strikingly similar, except for the details. It's in a different location. It's with a different audience, a Gentile audience, and the outcome is totally different. And this time, there's 12 baskets full, and the word for basket is different and actually means hamper. We, I selected this picture because it, they were huge baskets, seven baskets, and I think what Jesus is doing is the same effect that he was shooting for in chapter 6 and chapter 8, except saying it to the Gentiles, that I am the one who is amazing with abundance, and when you think of anyone playing on the matter-energy equation and producing food to feed hungry people in the wilderness, who do you think of? God. Okay, think of me. It's his calling card. I am him. I am that. I am the one who can feed thousands of people from seven loaves of bread. That's me. So after all this, the disciples, uh, there's an interaction with the Pharisees, which we'll talk about in a moment, but they get back to the boat and the disciples, <laughs> well, they're wondering what happened to the seven hampers. They only have one loaf of bread in the boat. Jesus makes this rather cryptic saying about watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And again, we'll talk about that in a minute, but the disciples are saying, oh no, oh no, is he mad at us because we lost the bread? What are we going to do for lunch? Now, he's fed 20,000 people. He's fed 4,000 people. What are we going to do for lunch? They shrunk him down to be the size of their next need. They're not getting it. Jesus left his calling card. They see it, but they don't get it. And so Jesus has a little testy exchange with them. I need to tell you that in this exchange, we're going to read it in a minute, there's nine rhetorical questions. Have you ever been in a conversation where someone asks you nine straight rhetorical questions? You probably have when you were about 12 and you broke the law. Your dad sat you down and I'm sure he asked you some rhetorical questions. This is it. 
aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Do you know what this is called? Disciple blindness. Sometimes the hardest things to see are right in front of you. They have seen Jesus perform all these miracles, and they've become miracle-resistant. You come here week after week after week, hear these things read, see them in your minds, and you leave miracle-resistant. Doesn't really flutter anything in you, doesn't really change anything outside for you. We become too close to see it. See what this really is. We walk on bricks and golden that were laid down by theology, and we don't see them. We sing these songs we're about to sing in this next season ad nauseum, these Christmas carols. We don't really hear what they're saying. A few years ago, I remember an interview on National Public Radio where they were talking about Handel's Messiah and how every year they sing it tens of thousands of times around the world. And this person they were interviewing was one of the choir members somewhere in Europe. And the, the journalist asked her, well, how many people do you think actually sing? And she says, oh, I can't imagine that, thousands and thousands. Then the journalist asked, how many people do you actually think hear what Handel is saying in this music? And she said, I have no idea. It's that close. But we cannot see it. There's disciple blindness. It's right in front of them. They don't see it. There's also Pharisee blindness. These men were far, far away from Jesus. They, uh, well, we see the, um, the texture of their approach, their conversation. They come maybe thinking that they're honest inquirers, but they're not. Pharisees came and began to question. That word question literally means to take control of a discussion. To test him, that word literally means to discredit. These are not honest inquiries. These are trying to take Jesus down. They ask him for a sign. That's not the usual word for miracle. That's the word of an apocalyptic kind of sign where the, day, where the, the sun goes out in the middle of the day. Now let me ask you this. Do you think if Jesus right there on the spot would have turned off the sun? Do you think the Pharisees would have actually believed, given their lives? I don't. Their minds were made up. They suffer from what is the default condition of the human heart, natural-born skepticism. The cause of human blindness is self-sufficiency. We do think that we can control our lives. We do think that we can explain the unexplainable. We do think we have power to control our lives, and if you let us, we'll control the world. We are natural-born skeptics. I was uh, preparing the sermon. I came across this uh, article in a journal from 2006. It's, the journal was called the Journal of Paleolimnology. 
was written by a man named Doran Knopf, N-O-F, who is an oceanographer and a limnologist. What's a limnologist? Study of lakes. And so, in the article, he's talking about how that the Bible has actually very much historically attested. And you can't just throw it out of hand. There's things in the Bible that probably happened. And he was particularly concerned about Jesus walking on the water. And so, in the article, he floats a theory. He said, probably what happened here is that every, well, less than every thousand years, uh, there's a phenomenon where weather events converge, and on the Sea of Galilee, there's a thin sheet of ice. So Jesus was probably surfing on a piece of ice in the middle of a windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. And that explains it. Now, I can see some of you smiling. I actually think it's kind of cool to think of Jesus as an extreme uh, ex-athlete surfing, windsurfing on the Sea of Galilee. But what would really be impressive is the timing of it all, to time it when there's actually ice there. It's a theory, okay? It's a theory. To me, though, what's behind the theory is this natural condition of the human heart where we try to explain away the unexplainable. And that is the default condition, the default condition of the Pharisees. It's the yeast. They talked about beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. This yeast is this human-centered existence where we can explain everything and control everything. And Jesus is saying, it's all around you, watch out. I think what we step back and we see what exactly is unfolding here in that Jesus is saying, all of us suffer from spiritual blindness. The world's not divided into good and bad. It's not divided into illiterate and academic. We're all blind. We're all blind. No matter how close you are, like the disciples, no matter how far away you are, like the Pharisees, we're blind, spiritually blind. And so what's interesting next in the flow of events the way Mark writes it, the way Jesus crafts it. A blind man is brought to Jesus. <laughs> oh, go figure. They bring him, and Jesus does the only two-stage miracle in the Gospels. So they bring him, Jesus <laughs> spits him. Can you see anything? I see people, but they're like trees. I can relate to that right now. What's going on here? Why this stage miracle? Was it because this man uh, had one of those, you know, bad case of blindnesses that not even God himself can fix without two tries? Is it, did he jerk his head out of the way on the first one? Well, did Jesus temporarily become unplugged from the electric grid? You know, it is only 99.9% .9 effective. Did he just lose it for a split second? What? We gotta know. I'm suggesting to you that this miracle is a parable. And what Jesus is trying to teach with this two-stage miracle is that we're all spiritually blind. And so the only way that we'll ever see is if we come to the end of our self-sufficiency and let Jesus open our eyes as to who he is. I know that's how the disciples read it. 
Because the same question that Jesus asked in the middle of the miracle, can you see anything, is the same question he'd asked them earlier in the nine rhetorical questions. I gave you eyes, can't you see? It's exactly what Jesus is doing. We're all spiritually blind. And until we come to the end of our self-sufficiency, we won't see unless Jesus opens our eyes. That means two things for us, by the way, if I could quick tuck something into your pocket to take with you when you leave. It means two things. First, for those of us who see Jesus, it means that we can never feel superior or never grow impatient with those who don't yet see him because they have to have Jesus open their eyes. So there's no room for us to become impatient or to look down on others who don't quite see it. And we never give up on anybody. Because Jesus can open anyone's eyes to see who he is. So we're patient and we're humble because we all know how this works. I once was blind, but now I see. It's grace. It's grace. You know the other thing? Many of you have come this morning. We, we, Billy mentioned this earlier. Many come every week to Waterstone and they're seeking. They're not quite sure who Jesus is, not quite sure this church thing or Christianity. They're just kind of checking this out. And so I want to speak directly to you this morning if you're just here checking this out. Here's what I want to say. If you've come this morning checking out Christianity only as a way to help your life, to be a self-improvement plan, you're not going to see Jesus that way. If you've come because, oh, a little prayer couldn't hurt, a little God couldn't hurt, a little spirituality can't hurt, and you're trying everything, you need to go farther than that. You need to actually experience Christianity for what it is. And do you know what Christianity is above all else? It's not a self-improvement plan. It's not a philosophy. It's not a series of doctrines. Do you know what it is? It's a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus. And relationship means talking to him. It means listening to him, reading about him. It means serving him. It means getting others' experiences of him. It's a relationship. You would treat him the way you would treat any of your closest friends. That's what Christianity is. And it takes relationship to see him. Tim Keller, who's a great pastor in Manhattan, he describes it this way with this illustration. He says he had a friend a few years back who never wore a seatbelt. And he'd come and pick Keller up, and they'd go here or there around New York City, and he wouldn't have a seatbelt on, and Keller would get on all over him. Don't you know the statistics of people who get in accidents and don't have seatbelts on? You know, he didn't say this, but shame on you. You know, just really guilt him. Well, never worked. I don't believe in seatbelts. So one day... This man came to pick Tim Keller up at the airport. Tim gets in the car and notices he has a seatbelt on. Tim goes, what happened? You're wearing a seatbelt. He says, well, I have this other friend. And he got into an accident. And he went through the windshield. 120 stitches on his face. I believe in seatbelts. You see, when you know someone, when you know someone, it changes the heart. Christianity is about knowing 
Jesus Christ and being in relationship to him. And so all of this points. There's the double miracle of the feeding. There's the half miracle saying everyone's blind and no one can see unless Jesus opens their eyes and you come to the end of yourself. And then we have this, the greatest miracle in the first eight chapters. Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on his way he asked them, who do people say that I am? Now I just want to interject this. Psychologists read this and they really call Jesus out for his wisdom here because the other condition of the human heart is that we are natural born gossips. And the way to get people talking is to prime the pump. What are others saying about me? And so they, they riffed on it. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and one of the prophets. Now, you got to admit, that's pretty good company, right? They think highly of Jesus. To say that he's on a level, Elijah was the most famous prophet in the Old Testament, and always mysterious because he never died. He went to heaven in a chariot of fire. To say that Jesus might be Elijah, wow, that's high praise. John the Baptist, high praise. So they're saying back then, as we hear now, yeah, this Jesus, he is a good spiritual leader. He was a great teacher. He's up there. Jesus won't let that lie. So he pulls out a double emphatic. He says, you, who do you say that I am? Finally, Peter says, you're Messiah, the king. Peter sees it. That's the miracle, the greatest miracle, when God can open a human heart and let that heart see Jesus. It's a miracle. Now, Matthew gives us a little color commentary that when Peter said this, you are the king, Jesus says to Peter, you are blessed, Peter, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My father has revealed this to you. And we see it again. That we're all born blind. Blind to God. We can't see. We have spiritual blindness. But yet, the Father reveals and Jesus opens our eyes and we can see God when we come finally to the end of ourselves. Jesus opens our eyes. So how does he do it? How does he open us? How does he cure our spiritual blindness? Two ways. First way is in stages. In stages. Some of us have known Jesus for quite a while, but we get caught in kind of this old habit of thinking. We, we misinterpret even some of the New Testament where we think that the day or the decision point where you become a Christian, all of a sudden you see everything you need to know and you, you don't have to grow anymore. Now, we, we base it on kind of the model of Paul. He was a terrorist one moment and an apostle the next. On the road to Damascus, the blinding light. But we forget that the Apostle Paul, after he had this experience with Jesus, he ended up in the desert of Arabia, Galatians tells us, for three years of de desert seminary where he learned about Jesus and grew and experienced the insight of relationship. My point is this. We all grow in stages. We have our eyes opened in seasons. Some of us right now, I'm guessing, because I've been there myself, are in a season of dullness, blindness. We're miracle blind. We just don't have any excitement for Jesus or about Jesus. We've stopped seeing. It's time for you to confess your holy discontent, your dissatisfaction with Jesus. You've got to call it out and give it to him. And Jesus say, and say to Jesus, I want to see more. Talk to Jesus right now. I'm saying right now. 
in your seat. Talk to Jesus and tell him you want more. More vision of who he is. You want to see him clearly. Ask him what's blocking your vision of Jesus. Now, I'm saying this. Often what happens is when you make a statement like that to Jesus, uh, usually the way we grow is through radical commitments, decisions, or suffering. This is not breezily that we're entering this. But I'm saying to you, if you are dissatisfied with where you are of Jesus and how much you're seeing of him, talk to him and ask for more. We grow in stages. We're given vision in stages. Ask for the next stage. Do you know the other way that Jesus cures spiritual blindness? It's through the the vision of the tree. The tree. We grow out of our blindness by more vision of the tree. You know, uh, uh, Janae Smith, who wrote our small group curriculum, she stopped at the masterful place, Mark 8.30. It's the 17th time this has happened. Did you hear it again? Jesus heals somebody or talks to somebody, and then what does he say? does it again and that's where we're going to end this first section on mark don't tell anybody what's going on there well we've talked a little bit about this remember how that uh, if people started blabbing about all these miracles and about all this great teaching that it would make it harder and harder for jesus to do his work and carry out his mission because of all the crowds but even more because if the government authorities, the yeast of Herod, or the religious authorities, the yeast of the Pharisees, began to come down on Jesus, that would cut short his ministry. And why would they come down on Jesus? Because he's raising the dead. And because he's changing human hearts. And no matter how good government you have, they can feed people, but they can't change hearts. And no matter how good religion you have, you can't raise the dead. And Jesus is a threat. And the religion and the government, they want to put him down. They will put him down. And they do. And in the last week of March, God willing, in 2018, we will read these verses. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean to have the vision of the tree? It means that Jesus entered the darkness so that you could see. It means that Jesus became blind and cut off from his father so that you could have relationship with his father. Does that move you? Do you understand how much Jesus loves you? Do you sense in the depths of your being how much the Father values you? To the degree that you do, you will live a holy life. To the degree that you do, you will stop feeling sorry for yourself, stop sweating the small stuff, stop worrying about what they're saying about you, stop worrying that they're getting ahead of you. To the degree that you see the tree is the degree that you will see clearly. And so it's decision time. It is decision time. Believe it or not, 
Our invitation is given by a New Testament scholar of the most boring book you can read, a commentary. Here it is. James Edwards. At some point, the colleagues of Jesus and everyone who has heard his name must look deep within Jesus and deep within themselves and risk a decision that will entail either a commitment to or a severance from the identity and the mission of this Jesus. It is decision time. Jesus never left us the option of thinking he was a great spiritual leader or an enlightened teacher, and we could admire him from a distance and say, yay, Jesus, I'm a fan. Never gave us that option. The only option is you either walk away from him because of his claims, I'm not buying it, or you throw down everything in your life into his hands to enable him to heal everything in your life, to, to have him forgive your sins, and to right now give you eternal life and relationship, which will never end, a relationship with God. And I'm asking you on the authority of Jesus, who do you say he is? Who? Christianity, Bonhoeffer said, entails a decision. What's yours? What's yours?